Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The North Korean government is recruiting kids who are bright, good at computers, so they can become people who can go out and, and get money for the North Korean regime, but also, like with the Sony Pictures hack, exert North Korea's power on the world stage. It's cheaper than hiring, you know, your James Bonds and your Aston Martins. If you can give a, you know, a youngster a laptop and an internet connection and say, go, attack our enemies, that's, that's a fairly cheap outlay for what could be a really good return on investment. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It is a story that reads like the plot from a Hollywood movie and punches right into the heart of one of the most secretive regimes in the world. Hackers from the so-called Lazarus Group first shut down Sony's studios when it attempted to screen a movie about North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and then went on to attempt a daring theft of $1 billion from Bangladesh Bank. But who are the Lazarus Group and how did they emerge from a secretive nation where only the chosen few are allowed online? Today, I'm talking to author and journalist Jeff White about the incredible tale played out in his top podcast, The Lazarus Heist, and now in his new book of the same name. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. I wanted to start with the regime and what life is like in North Korea. Um, One of the the funniest stories I read uh, was about unicorns and how Kim Jong-un was supposed to have found hidden unicorns and ridden them, uh, you know, tamed them and all this sort of stuff. And uh, he was he, he had discovered this beast that was no longer anywhere else in the world, the mythical creature. Mythical Colima, I think it's called, the, 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 the mythical beast of North Korea, yeah. Any yeah. truth in that, Jeff? <laughs> I'd say no uh, on on first blush. I think myth- discovering the mythical unicorn beast is probably an, an unlikely turn of events, I think. And yet an entire population living in one of the most secretive parts of the world believe that. Well, that's a good question. Um, if they were asked by party officials whether they believe it, they would give the answer yes, because 
that's the answer you give to party officials. It's very, very difficult to actually know what people in North Korea think, because if you're a Westerner and you go to North Korea um, and you try and speak to local people, there's often a government minder who's accompanying you, or even if you're unaccompanied, will go and speak to that person after they've spoken to you and say, what did you say to that Western person? So getting an honest opinion as to how much of the, frankly, ludicrous, Mm. slightly ludicrous stuff that comes out that people actually believe is really, really difficult. Um, And it's possible in the same way that in a lot of sort of communist and socialist countries, there's this ability to, to try and believe what the regime is saying, but also understand that that's complete nonsense. It's happened in the USSR. It's possible that the North Koreans can can hold both things in their heads simultaneously. I learned so many things from your podcast, The Lazarus Heist. And I have to tell you, for starters, that um, if anybody sees me over the next while and I look slightly slimmer, it's because I was listening to it while cycling over the weekend. And I went many, many kilometres. I binged it. So it was (laughs) fantastic. Um, Thank you. And in particular about North Korea, one of the world's poorest countries um, and how the Kims came to power in 1948. And, mm. um, you know, I had sort of, I suppose, many stories you hear and and see kind of seem laughable when we're, you know, in our, our very privileged Western world. But it actually is an incredible story of the monarchy mm. and how they have sort of, narrated this story about their past that they were they came from bears and that they have this they are mythological logical in a sense themselves they have superpowers and it started with Kim Jong Un's grandfather is that right yes Kim Il Sung yes yeah mm. yeah founder of North Korea um if you believe the North Korean um, histories. He, he he sort of stormed in almost single-handedly um, and, and, you know, kicked out the uh, kicked out the invaders and, and recovered North Korea for the North Koreans. The, the slightly more accurate um, version, I think, is that the, the Russians, uh, the Soviet government at that point, needed somebody friendly in um, North Korea. And so they put Kim Il-sung in place. And he initially did a very good job. I mean, you know, the country was then subsequently went into a civil war um, with, with what became South Korea. After that, he actually did a pretty good job of rebuilding the country. And North Korea, people forget, North Korea during the sort of 50s was seen as this, you know, socialist utopia. Mm. Um, and, and, and particularly compared to South Korea, which wasn't doing particularly well at the time. So it's, Kim Il-sung was able to sort of cement his reign there, get people behind him. But over the years just became more and more corrupt um, and, and developed this, this sort of God-type persona um did they're not quite a monarchy i mean it's not fair to say that they i don't think they would be described as a monarchy in the way we'd look at them as a monarchy you know that there is there are government leaders um so it's not quite that but also they're not quite like a president or a prime minister they sit somewhere between it's a really interesting question actually it's where they sit the sort of a combination of a monarch combination of a, a leader a combination of a religious leader um it, it's it's a really peculiar thing and, and like many things in north korea is probably unique in the world so on his demise, his son, Kim Jong-il, took over hmm. and yep. he seemed to be a bit of a baddie. Yes, I mean, Kim Jong-il um, took over at a particularly difficult time. Um, his father had been in power, Kim Il-sung, for decades by this point. I think he'd outlived something like nine US presidents. I mean, Kim Il-sung's reign and, and hold on the country was astonishing. Kim Jong-il takes over. A number of things happen. Number one, he's got to fend off the people who don't want him in charge. Um, 
succession is always a difficult thing in any sort of dynasty, basically. Um, also, there's a horrific famine. 94, 95, North Korea was hit by this awful, awful famine. Um, the country's basically on its knees uh, economically. So Kim Jong-il, um, I think, feels he has to clamp down for a lot of reasons. He has to basically grip the country with an iron fist at that point to keep everything on track, to prevent dissent and to prevent the country from falling apart. So I think the, the very militaristic reign of Kim Jong-il came about for a lot of those factors. He introduced a thing called Songun, which is military first. So in the country, the priority is given to the military. The money goes to the military. And that happened at the same point millions of people were dying of starvation. So suddenly the, the military becomes gorged on, on, on money that should be going to feed the people. Um, again, Kim Jong-il had to force that through. Uh, uh, you know, with a sort of iron will. So there's a lot of things about Kim Jong-il and how he came to power that I think led him to be very, very authoritarian, authoritarian and to double down on the on the, on the the approach that his, his father Kim Il-sung took. Mm. And he was the founder of the Korean Computer Centre, which is really maybe the start of where your story covered in the yeah. Lazarus heist comes from. But he also started testing ballistic missiles around 2006. As you say, the country was in a famine, but he still wanted to see how far he could get or how near he could get to the US. Yes, yeah. I mean, I, you know, to be clear, I'm not a North Korean specialist. I've come across this through the sort of cyber crime part, but obviously making the podcast with my co-host, Gene Lee, you know, I've learned a huge amount about North Korea. It's a deeply fascinating country. The missile tests and nuclear tests are really interesting because... There is this interesting question of, you know, if, you, if if most of your country is on the poverty line, if not beneath it, and some people, certainly in the 90s, were literally starving to death, why do you then go and spend a whole bunch of money on nuclear weapons and, and missiles? It doesn't seem to sort of make sense. The, the, the dynamics behind this are that North Korea wants to get an international reputation. It is desperately important that North Korea punches above its weight. How do you do that? You know, North Korea wants to sit down opposite Russia, the US, China, the, the world's superpowers but it's 25 million people in its tiny country. How do you do that? Nuclear weapons is the answer. If you've got nukes, people talk to you. Mm. And that's what North Korea has done. Now, in order to get the nukes, you need to build them. Um, and that takes money. And to get the money, uh, they set about doing various nefarious activities, is the allegation. Now, well, after they did that, the international community, through the United Nations mainly, put sanctions on North Korea, which prevents it from getting money. So in order to get the money to keep having the nukes, to keep having the place at the international table, it needs to keep stealing the money. So it's this death spiral. North Korea is trapped in a sort of financial death spiral. And the people caught in those gears, depressingly, are the majority of North Korea's 25 million people. So the dynamics are really interesting. And we talk about poverty, uh, you know, they are really seriously poor and uh, also not allowed access to the internet. They're not allowed to see mm. what the world is like outside the country. It sounds to me like a giant version of that uh, movie. And you'll have to help me out here now. What was the name of that? The Truman the Show. The Truman Show. Thank you. <laughs> um, that's what it sounds like, or it sort of looks like from, you know, looking in. Um, I just saw some sort of a picture there online, mm. an aerial of South Korea lit up at night and North Korea in blackness. Yes. Yeah, I will say that is changing. North Korea has got this interesting dilemma at the moment because um, part of the way that it's justified Kim Jong-un as a new ruler, um, certainly according to my co-host of the podcast, Gene Lee, is, is um, 
Kim Jong-un's depicted as this millennial guy, you know, he's younger, a lot younger than, than the previous leaders, his father and his grandfather. And so the idea is North Korea is a sort of forward-looking society under Kim Jong-un, and technology is going to form part of that. And as you say, they created the Korean Computing uh, Center. Um, so mobile phones and computers have have leaked into North Korean society, and a lot of Chinese-made you know devices are, are ending up there. But that presents the North Korean government with a huge problem. They have basically sealed the country off from the outside world to prevent their population from seeing how far behind North Korea has fallen. And this started way back. I mean, you know, radios that were shipped into North Korea were soldered so that they could only receive one frequency, and that was the government frequency. So that information bubble has been in place for a while. At the point you have information technology, well, the clue's in the title. It's information technology. So how do you give people information technology but prevent them from getting the information? And North Korea's done all these really interesting things about... um, you know, so the phones will have Wi-Fi, but they can only connect to one Wi-Fi network, which is a similar thing to what they did with the radios. You know, mm. we give you the ability, but only through one channel. Um, there's a there's a, a, a sort of trade in, in North Korea of memory sticks filled with South Korean soap operas. We love South Korean soap operas, at least some people in North Korea do. And again, the government's tried to clamp down by making it so that all the tablets, tablets and the phones and the laptops and so on can only play media files that have been stamped and approved by the government. But then there's this whole sort of counter thing of can people hack around that? So so trying to maintain that information bubble um, has been a really interesting one, certainly at the moment for, for North Korea. But look, fundamentally, the North Korean government wants to control every message that the, the North Korean people see and, and really control what they think and, and how they think. And just to go back a little bit before we come on to the, the cybercrime, which is at the absolute centre of your podcast, in 2010 or thereabouts, Kim Jong-il had a stroke, became ill. Mm. And in 2011, his son, Kim Jong-un, who we might be all familiar with, with his little hairdo and all, he came to <laughs> power. Um, he was only in his 20s and he was presented to the country as a computer genius as somebody who had almost superpowers when it comes to technology. Yeah, uh, um, and this is the sort of cult of <clears throat> the cult of the Kims, really. You know, the idea was that he'd... There's all these stories that people who've escaped North Korea have told. You know, they were they were told that Kim Jong-un had, you know, scored scored a hole-in-one at the age of three on the golf course. I mean, it's just... And again, it's, it's, it's likely that a lot of North Koreans just think this is nonsense. Um, but it's also likely some Koreans believe it because they you know they've been told this person has mythical powers so yeah, kim jong-un <clears throat> comes to power and and computers becomes very much part of what he does um uh as i say t- to cre- create north korea and paint north korea as a forward-looking society but also in the background to recruit and train groups of computer hackers and computer experts who can a work on the nuclear program because nuclear uh, technology is very computer heavy, but B also the allegation is go out into the world and 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 commit cybercrime and bring in money for the regime that they can then spend on the nuclear program, but also feathering the nest for their buddies in government. Mm. So that yeah. takes us on to 2013 to Sony Pictures, where the podcast mm. opens um, in this story of how there was a, a movie being made. And in it, I thought it was quite unusual, I have to say, that, you know, a living head of state was being Mm. actually depicted as himself and he was going to be, I mean, they had him as a bit of a gobshite. He was absolutely in love (laughs) with uh, this this show and he was kind of Mm. starstruck and um, uh, 
the kind of the the crux of it was he was going to be assassinated. These two um, uh, presenters were going to go and meet him because he was so starstruck by him. And they were approached and asked, would they kill him while they met him? Yes, yes, Um, CIA plot, yeah. I have to say, of all the things I've heard about Kim (laughs) Jong-un, I would have sort of half agreed with him on complaining about that one, whatever (laughs) about if they had depicted him as a, you know, as a not quite as, you know, as himself. But um, so just tell me a little bit about that and and what happened in Sony yeah. Pictures. Yeah, yeah. So this was Sony, um, it's 2014, actually, the, the film was going to be released. It's called The Interview. As you say, it's about a couple of bumbling journalists who go to interview Kim Jong-un and end up in, involved in a CIA assassination attempt. The murder of Kim Jong-un is depicted and depicted in very graphic detail in that film. Um, and this puts Sony on the horns of a dilemma, really. On the one hand, this was obviously going to annoy North Korea. And the advice that they sought, because they did seek advice about the film, made it pretty clear the North Koreans were not going to like this. The North Koreans had already, already written to the United Nations about this film in very stark terms and said, we do not approve of this. However, um, North Korea is a dictatorship. Um, yes, say millions of people have died. There, there is immense repression in that country from the defectors and, and survivors who've come out and, and told about this. You know, we shouldn't be friendly. You know, why should we be pleasing North Korea? And you look back at, you know, other satires, The Great Dictator, the Charlie Chaplin film, you know, um, Hot Shots, uh, the Charlie Sheen film. You know, we've we've poked fun at dictators before and satire is one of the ways we do that. So Sony's decision placed on the horns of that dilemma was to go for it, release the film. Um, What we now know in hindsight was that North Korean hackers were allegedly targeting Sony in myriad different ways. They were were taking every opportunity they could to hack into Sony Mm. and eventually were successful. Not only did they cripple the company's computer networks, thousands of computers went down. I mean, at one point, Sony, was they were using paper and pens. They couldn't even send a fax in the office. It was annihilation on a digital level. But then perhaps more damagingly, the hackers started leaking the information they'd stolen from Sony. So you're talking very, very, very sensitive internal emails. And this led to the resignation of, of one of Sony's co-chair people, Amy Pascal. Um, so they, they, they eviscerated the company, but then ruined the careers of people within the company at all levels. It was it was absolutely astonishing attack, the Sony attack. It really was. Planned, planned to a T. I mean, a, a sort of almost, it's almost like a media planner had sat down with them and said, well, this is how you run a media campaign, you know, to really damage your target. Absolutely astonishing. And interestingly, you interviewed some of the, um, I suppose, people in lesser jobs in Sony who had also been affected by it, you know, people who were in admin roles, etc. And, um, you know, their personal information was leaked online and it, it genuinely affected people personally as well as mm. big careers in the company. Um, interesting that, you know, people from North Korea and presumably it hasn't been actually proved that the hack came from North Korea. It's still largely suspected or has it been proved? It's it's an allegation mainly from the US. Um, I I will say the the US has put out, uh, I think, a 178 page criminal complaint against the chap it thinks is part of the team behind this. There is a very, very, very great deal of evidence that the US has put into the public domain about this. Security researchers have also looked into it and also side uh, with the US government. There's a lot of technical information uh, about this. So it's still an allegation, but an allegation with a great deal of evidence behind Mm. it. Just to put North Korea's point of view, North Korea's view is this is a smear campaign. We're being blamed for something we didn't do by the US, who are our enemy. The problem is... Mm. North Korea haven't come out with 178 pages, you know, rebutting line by line what the US has done. So I think it's 
North Korea's denial is 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 there, but it's 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 brief, and for me, it, it needs to be expanded upon if they're really going to prove they didn't do this or say they didn't do this. Yeah, and obviously, clearly, they have a, a motivation there when you've described the regime and how uh, the Kims are held in that country. Um, the interesting that they had such a good read on exactly as you say how to really damage a company because. In many ways, they damaged individuals in the company, but they also damaged, I mean, you know, there was threats being made if this film was shown. So the theatre companies, the cinemas didn't want to show it because uh, they wanted families to come to watch other films and the whole thing ended up being canned. That's right. Um, uh, So as the release date for the film, which was Christmas 2014, I think what I'm saying, as the release date became closer... Um, Sony starts to really feel the squeeze on this. <clears throat> the computer networks inside Sony have been attacked. Information about their top execs is leaking out. And they start to get really, really worried about what's going to happen with this film. The distributors that, that, that were putting out other films started to get worried as well, because the idea was, look, if, if, if people are worried about going to see the interview, they're going to be worried about going to the cinema generally. I mean, there's a, a point at which the hackers started to threaten physical attribution and, and potentially a bombing campaign. Um There'd been attacks in cinemas before in the US recently, slightly before this. And so the idea was, look, people are going to be put off seeing our films that are unrelated to the interview, this Sony film, because of these, this, this furore. So, so let's, let's can this film. And eventually Sony, um, Sony relented. Um, a couple of the big cinema chains pulled out and, and, and the film didn't get aired in, in most mainstream cinemas. Although it did get an online airing and it got a, an airing in um, independent cinemas as well. So this, Jeff, is the introduction to what are known as the Lazarus Group Centre to your podcast about cyber attacks coming from North Korea. And the the attack on Sony Picks in 2013, which resulted in the film not being screened as planned in 2014, might have been maybe a dry run for what was to come next. And the next cyber attack is really very, very central and is the, the, the key story in the Lazarus heist. That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, both in the podcast and, and in the books written about this. This is the um, this is the attack on Bangladesh Bank, which is the national financial institution of Bangladesh. It's like the Bank of England for them. Um, targeted in 2015, eventually in 2016, the hackers moved in to take the money and they originally tried to take out a billion dollars from Bangladesh Bank. Which is not only, I think, I think I'm right in saying that would be the largest attempted theft in one go ever, um, but also uh, would have caused immense problems for Bangladesh. I mean, it's not a not a not a rich country, Bangladesh, and subsequent investigators have said that they felt that this would have been an existential problem for Bangladesh if that amount of money had been taken from the country. You know, the country's credit rating could have been affected. That affects their ability to raise money on the international markets, their ability to pay government workers' salaries. You know, there's a whole bunch of ramifications that could have sprung from that. In the end, they didn't get the billion dollars, for reasons which we'll probably come on to. But um, but, but it, it, the idea that they could even think of targeting a national bank in that way was absolutely astonishing. Unprecedented, I think, in cybercrime uh, history. And scary to think that those hackers were lurking there around the computers of Bangladesh Bank for up to a year and planning this mm. with 
precision. They not only planned the date and working on the time zones between the US and Bangladesh and, and other regions, but they they didn't just want to take it because they knew they had to move it quick and they had to launder it quick. It's a huge amount of money to even consider um, how you would translate it back into North Korea, where, where obviously it was uh, badly needed to fund these missiles and, and, and other activities. But just give me a little detail about um, about that sort of meticulous planning and the uh, importance of a simple printer within the bank. Well, this is the thing. I think I think people have this idea that computer hackers break in, and, and if if you watch the movies, you know it's all green code on a black screen, and you type in a few commands, and then one of them says we're in, and then you know you hit go, and there's a big thing on screen that says you know password accepted. You have the money. It's not like that. You know, computer hacking is slow, it's arduous, it often fails. And also when you break into somewhere like Bangladesh Bank, for example, as the hacker, you have no idea how this business works. You know, if you think about any business you've worked with, they all have, you know, their own system set up. They've got their own shared computer drives. And, you know, when part of your induction into any company is to be shown how the computers work and where to store different bits and bobs. Well, the hackers have to work this out remotely. It's like being, it's like being a burglar dropped into a very dark house with a very weak torch. And you have no idea the layout of that house. You've got to, you've got to feel your way around. And at any moment, if you knock over, you know, a vase or a set of books, the, the owners might wake up and kick you out. It's that kind of analogy. So the hackers spent a year inside Bangladesh Bank and they realised a number of useful things. Number one, they realised that Bangladesh kept a billion dollars in an account in New York. So they decided that was where they were going to try and steal a billion dollars from. But they also realised that Bangladesh Bank kept records of any transfers that were taken out of that New York account. And they kept records digitally. And so the hackers just changed the software so that digital record of a transaction wouldn't be stored. So that when they made their transfers of a billion dollars, there'd be no digital record. But they also realised that Bangladesh Bank, quite cutely in a way, keeps a paper record. You know, like a lot of people do, they print out their emails, they print out things, they're worried about losing them on the computer. Mm. Bangladesh Bank had a written record, a printer that printed out all of the transactions. And so the hackers realised that if if they broke in and tried to steal a billion dollars and there was a set of printouts saying, oh, a billion dollars has just been transferred, that's going to give the game away. So they broke into the printer and they changed the printer software so that it wouldn't print out records of the transactions. It would just print out blank pages. Um, And so they understood Bangladesh Bank's working practices on a really granular level. And that's partly what took them a year to do, you know, to to watch. There's another story I got told about recently, another bank where they they set up software that that recorded screen grabs of everything that was going on on a bank employee's machine for a year. (laughs) Every three seconds for a year, they had screen grabs of what was going on on the screen. Now, at that point, you're basically sitting over the person's shoulder. Everything they do on their computer, you're watching. So when you come to do your crime as a hacker, you go in and you just know, you know how the systems work. It's it's a really remarkable thing that hackers do to accumulate that kind of knowledge. And they were also then, they, they chose a particular day when they finally decided mm. they were going to do this, which was a, a national holiday. Yes, that's right. Yeah, the timing's a bit really interesting. So... Um, they've broken into Bangladesh Bank, they've worked out they can get the money, they've worked out they can disable the printer and so on. This took them a year, so by February 2016, it's time to take the money out. The first thing you need to know is that in Bangladesh, the weekend runs from Friday to Saturday, not Saturday, Sunday. I wouldn't have known that now, that's another thing I learned. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, quite a few Muslim countries apparently have this. Mm. Um, so the hackers start their hack and start stealing the money at 8.36pm 
on Thursday. So at that point, most of the bank employees have left the office for the night and they're probably not going to be in most, most of them until Sunday. But if you think about where the money is, the money's in New York and there it's 9.36 a.m. So you've got all of Thursday where New York's awake, but Bangladesh banks asleep. And then even on Friday, when people start coming in, you know, to Bangladesh, a few skeleton staff come into Bangladesh Bank, the full staff isn't there. So it takes them a while on Friday to work out what's gone on. By Saturday, Bangladesh Bank staff are going, hang on, something's gone badly wrong here. So they start phoning up the New York Fed, New York Federal Reserve Bank. But they're closed because it's Saturday. And they're closed on Sunday as well when Bangladesh come back. And the thing that makes this absolutely brilliant is, um, for the hackers at least, when they transferred the money out from New York, they transferred it into banks in the Philippines. Monday, 8th of February 2016 is a bank holiday in the Philippines. So by engineering these different time zones, they've given themselves a five-day weekend to get away with it all. I mean, even you know, Queen's Jubilee, we're not getting five days. It, it's absolutely astonishing the amount of time they, they gave themselves and the engineering of that. Because, you know, that Lunar New Year holiday in the Philippines, that only comes around, obviously, you know, w- once in a while. So the hackers had to time everything. So they were absolutely on the money with the timing. To precision. So the, the New York bank was getting requests to transfer this money. Um, it was mm. heading to the Philippines. In mm-hmm. Bangladesh, the printer was disabled, so they weren't getting the the um, the, the printouts of mm-hmm. the money being transferred. And mm-hmm. everybody was off partying. That should have been probably, yeah, well, they should have been partying at mm. the weekends. It was their weekend. So, you know, <laughs> that was fine. Um, but how much did they actually get to transfer? I'm mean, surely somewhere along the line, somebody yes. came in, had a look at this and went, what the? Yes, yes. Well, in fairness to them, the New York Federal Reserve Bank did that. So um, they try and transfer out. It's $951 million is the actual amount they tried to transfer out, hmm. which is Bangladesh Bank's money sitting inside an account at the New York Federal Reserve Bank. Now, somebody at the New York Federal Reserve Bank did see this and thought, hang on, why is Bangladesh clearing out its account? This is weird. So they messaged um, Bangladesh Bank to say, look, what's happening with this? But those messages were meant to be printed out on the printer. But of course, the printer's not working. They've disabled the printer. So all these messages from New York saying, what are you doing? Why are you transferring this money? Hang on, what are these transactions about? None of them get through. So the New York Federal Reserve Bank does start actioning some of these transactions so instead of transferring $951 million, $81 million gets through to the Philippines. So in the end, their sort of billion-dollar heist gets derailed, um, really because somebody in the New York Federal Reserve Bank starts looking at these transactions. And the other reason they do that isn't just because it's a lot of money. The other reason they do that is, by sheer coincidence, by dumb luck, the bank that the, the hackers are transferring the money to in the Philippines is in a place called Jupiter Street. It's thousands of banks in, in Manila and the Philippines could pick any of them. They picked that one, Jupiter Street. The word Jupiter was flagged in the New York Federal Reserve Bank because it was the name of an Iranian ship that had been sanctioned years before. Nothing to do with it. Absolute, complete coincidence. Just, just the system, you know, computer says no. Um, complete coincidence. Mm. But that was enough for a New York Federal Reserve Bank person to say, hang on, what's going on with all these transactions? So simply using this word Jupiter cost the computer hackers something like $870 million. Um, So that's the $81 million that gets through to Philippines. And was it possible, like, I mean, was there any reason that Bangladesh Bank would have wanted to transfer all that money to Manila? No, no. I mean, the, the, the reason Bangladesh keeps an account in the New York Federal Reserve Bank is if they want to pay someone in dollars, mm. 
rather than having to kind of change their Bangladeshi currency into dollars and then pay them, they can just pay them direct in dollars from New York. Mm. So it's a foreign exchange, foreign currency account that they've got. And so there'd be no reason why they'd want to take the whole billion dollars out. You know, they're unlikely to want to make a billion dollar payment in one go to somebody. So if it wasn't for the word Jupiter raising the red flags and the staff member um, from the New York Fed going, this is not making sense, could they have actually transferred the whole amount? It is it is possible, yes. Um, the, the the money, the eighty one million dollars, did go to the Philippines and was then withdrawn from the bank in in a in a particularly cunning way. Had they got the nine hundred fifty one million dollars, the Philippines, it's possible they would have been able to take the whole lot out. However, the eventual uh, uh, aim for them in the Philippines was to withdraw the money in cash for reasons we'll sort of probably go on to. Um, withdrawing $951 million in cash would have been very difficult, but potentially they could have, they could have managed it, they could have got away with the whole lot. Scary to think um, that that could have happened and, and you know, what the ramifications for Bangladesh would have been. Um, in the Philippines, they have some help. That's right. The um, So the money goes to the Philippines. It ends up in this bank in Jupiter Street, um, which is run by a woman called Maya Santos de Guita. She's the bank manager. Now, obviously, if you're going to transfer money, you've got to put it into an account. Mm-hmm. The four accounts the money gets trans- transferred into were set up by Maya de Guito the previous year and then just sat dormant. And suddenly these accounts are awash with money. Then the sort of washing machine effect takes place. They move the money from account to account. Uh, as Nicola, you'll be well familiar with, there's a money laundering classic. Uh, move it around, move it around. Try and throw the investigators off the scent. Um, but the problem with that is, there's still a paper record. When you transfer money from one account to another, there's, there's always a paper record. So what the hackers are after doing now is to take the money and break the chain that links the money to the original crime. It's a bit like in the Western movies where the cowboys used to take the horse into a stream. So if they're being tracked by someone, they'd, they'd walk the horse into a stream, walk down the stream and then exit the stream later down. So when the trackers followed the horse footprints and the cowboy footprints, they got to the stream and then that the, the trail was was gone. It's it's a similar sort of thing. So to do this, they withdrew the money in cash. Now it's eighty one million dollars. They withdrew it in local Filipinos currency pesos. That is five hundred kilograms of cash. That is a grand piano's worth of cash, which they drove across town to two casinos in the Philippines, swapped that money into casino chips, and then gambled it across the casino tables. And the reason for that is, if you think about it. If you take the money in, you swap it for chips, and then you win some, lose some, you get your chips back, you swap them back into cash and walk out. It's very difficult for an investigator to link the dollar that went into the casino to the dollar that goes out. So the whole point was to break the chain of traceability. It's classic money laundering tactic. I've been to the Philippines and those pesos would, would you know, weigh you down, even if you just had pocket money. <laughs> would, yeah, yes. they're yeah. just, it's, it's never ending. You feel very rich, actually, uh, briefly. <laughs> but, um, and I also didn't see this district you spoke about in Manila. I was clearly in a, a more rundown part of Manila, but um, <laughs> it's, it's obviously the, the place to go if you have money. Uh, where these the casinos, casinos yeah, are, yeah, yeah. I mean, North Korea. Yeah, that's, that's, sorry, Manila has has um, made itself a casino zone. Obviously, it's quite close to China. Mm. A lot of gambling interest in China. Gambling is illegal in China, um, so people will go outside the borders. And Manila set itself up as a gambling mecca. The other thing Manila did to, to do that, uh, it seems, was to give its casinos what you might call light touch regulation. So they were not at this point regulated 
by money laundering regs, which meant that if you bring in, let's say, $81 million in cash in a suitcase, the casino is under no obligation to say to you, hang on, buddy, where did you get that? Uh, they are now, this has changed. Uh, they're now regulated by money laundering regulations. But um, at the time, it was possible to do. So that's another thing that was in the hackers' favour. So in addition to the bank holiday being in the Philippines, the hackers are thinking, oh, well, we can get into the casinos and the casinos might not ask any questions. So the Philippines starts to look like a really good destination, doesn't it? Yeah, to, to, totally. To Clearly to. why they chose it as well. Um, I mean, any town that you could drive a grand piano's weight of cash across town and just walk <laughs> in and start betting. And of course, even the way they bet was, um, you know, they bet to break even. They didn't bet, bet yeah. to win or to lose. They 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 bet yeah. to break even, and uh, that in itself was clever. And again, more understanding really of the modern world from people who don't mm. maybe live in the modern world. A, a vast understanding of it. Um, so this isn't looking good for Bangladesh's money. It's gone into mm. this casino. It moves on as well, I think, to another casino in Macau, which is of mm. Hong Kong. Um, what what is happening, the money, and who's on the trail of it at this stage? Uh, well, multiple people are on the trail of it, notably Bangladesh Bank, who are wondering where their $81 million has gone. They realise it's gone to the Philippines. They go to the Philippines to, 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 to chase it. Um, but at this point, they're hit with a bit of a problem because... Obviously, the money is moving at the speed that the hackers and, and their accomplices are trying to move it. They're, they're trying to get it through the casinos as quickly as possible. Um, Bangladesh Bank is stymied on multiple different levels. So you can you can freeze the account into which the money was initially transferred, which they did. But of course, the hackers have, and their accomplices have moved the money out of those accounts mm. really quickly into other accounts. <clears throat> so the ability for the sort of bank's processes to catch up with the trail of the money... It puts some barriers in the way. The other thing is the Philippine Senate has a big investigation into this to try and work out what's gone on and where the money is. And that investigation reveals it's in the casinos. But the problem the casinos have got is that these people turned up with what looked like their own money, $81 million, and they started gambling it. So the casinos say, well, you know, these are customers. We can't just take their money off them. You've got to have some kind of warrant. You've got to have some kind of court procedure. And of course, that takes time. Meanwhile, the money is ebbing and flowing across the gambling tables. So you've got this almost bizarre situation where Bangladesh Bank's officials, you can almost imagine them, you know, with their noses pressed up against the glass of the casino, watching their money leaking across the tables, which is not being able to do anything about it because the judicial procedures are slowing slowing them down. They've got to wait for the judges and the courts and so on to catch up. Uh, meanwhile, the money's ebbing away. How long does it take you to gamble 81 million? <laughs> That's a good question. Um... It, it took about a month. Um, there was a team of gamblers, we think it was about 15, 16, something like that, um, who were recruited <clears throat> for the task of gambling. Now, now we should be clear, we don't, they, they almost certainly didn't know that they were gambling the results of money allegedly stolen by North Korea from Bangladesh. But they get told, look, go in this casino, we'll pay for your drinks, you sit there gambling. Doesn't really matter if you win or lose because, you know, the whole point's to wash the money. Sound like fun? Yeah, all right, okay. So they sign these people up. But it took time, you know, they gambled... Eight hours a day. It took them. It took them a month to get through the eighty-one million. It's absolutely astonishing. It'd be pretty boring if you weren't kind of in it to win, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, I do quite like gambling. I have to admit myself. But um, and if Kim Jong Un is listening, um, you know, if he wanted to offer me any sort of role in any of this going forward, that would be my niche area. But. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine sitting there over the over hours and hours and hours and uh you know not having that 
buzz to win. But anyway, this is a, a completely different thing than going to Vegas, isn't it? Um, so where do we come to next with the chase of the money? And I know there's a certain amount still out there gone, yeah. but they're, they did seem to, to claw back quite a, a significant portion of it. Exactly. So, so just to do the full sum. So 951 million is the um, amount they try and mm. take. 81 million ends up in the Philippines. 30 million of that money gets paid to a Chinese guy called Wei Kang Zhu, who just buggers off with no idea, just go, leaves the country with it. No sign of him. So that's 30 million goes that way. In a suitcase, like you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically just give him cash, off he goes. Right. And the, the, the Senate investigation uh, chairman said, well, th- there must be some record of him leaving. He must have arrived at an airport somewhere if he flew out. Mm. And they said, oh, well, maybe he was on a private jet. We've got no record of it. So Wei Kang Zhu, somewhere in the world, he's got the 30 million. If you're listening, Wei Kang, we'd love to, we'd love to speak to you. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, um, 51 mil ends up at the uh, two casinos, actually. Um, 20 million at one, 30 million at the other. It's gambled across the tables. You've got to pay those people gambling. They've got to take a bit of a cut. The money from there disappears out of the Philippines. Now, we think it went to Macau. And the reason we think it went to Macau is two of the people who oversaw this whole gambling operation are Macau residents. And also the, the, the companies that organised these sort of gambling trips inside the casino are also Macau-based. So the strong assumption is that it ends up back in Macau. Now, from a North Korean perspective, that's interesting because Macau has a, a very long and dark history with Macau. Macau is a place where North Korean agents have ended up, North Korean businesses have ended up, and it's seen by many as a sort of conduit through which North Korea gets people, money and goods in and out of North Korea. So the Macau connection for the North Korean attribution makes perfect sense that that, it, that the money would end up back there. Jeff, is Macau an island off Hong Kong or am I imagining it? You can certainly get to it by boat from Hong Kong and it's part of Chinese mainland, is it? It's part of China. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a special administrative region, which is the same as Hong Kong. And I think it's separated by water, Macau, I think. You have to take some kind of boat or bridge. But it's basically, it's, it's a bit of land jutting off of the edge of China. Yeah. And a weird kind of uh, version of Vegas. Yeah, oh yeah, bigger than Vegas. Seven times bigger than Vegas, Macau. It's a huge, huge gambling mecca. Ooh. And what's interesting about that is if you're talking about criminality, uh, as I say, gambling in China is illegal. So if you've been ripped off, let's say, by some gambler, and you're Chinese, you can't turn to the Chinese courts to help you. This is not going to help. So you have to resort to what you might call extrajudicial means, i.e. some heavy who's going to break your, your your debtor's legs for you, something like that. So inevitably, places like Macau have ended up sometimes with a criminal problem because, you know, they're, they're rife with people gambling and they're rife with enforcers who can then enforce all that. It's, it's, there's no sort of legal way of those contracts being enforced. So, you know, Macau, through its through its, um, through its gambling heritage, has sort of ended up with quite a seedy, dark underside mm. over the years. It's trying to clean it up now, but, you know, it's, it's, has been associated with a sort of slightly murky side for a while. It does sound like an interesting place to visit, mind you. Um, I'd love to go. I haven't been. I haven't been. The, the money? Mm. So um, is it just lost in all that? Well, well this is what's interesting. I mean, I, and it is dissatisfying and it is one of the flaws of the, you know, the podcast and the book story that I've written, which is, you know, the, the, if this was a movie, the end scene you'd want would be, you know, Kim Jong-un rolling around on a bed of banknotes laughing maniacally. Um, that doesn't happen. The, the money, the, the frustrating. I was going to say you're being held up by his ankles and shaken to, to <laughs> let it all fall out of his pockets. 
Well, yes, yes. All, yeah, all, all the cops leading the culprits away in handcuffs. You want some movie ending yeah. to this. There isn't one. The money leaks away and the people leak away. So the gamblers I've talked about, no sign of them. Wei Kang Zhu, no sign of him. The guys who ran the casino operation in Manila, they just mysteriously go and they get arrested, but we're never heard of again. You know, everybody just leaks away. And and the money doesn't necessarily have to end up back in North Korea, if it indeed is North Korea behind this behind this crime. Because North Korea can keep the money in other countries. If you think about it, you know, if it goes back to North Korea, what are you sort of going to do with mm. it? You know, there's not much to buy, not much to spend it on. But if you keep that money in Macau, for example, you can pay people off locally. You can buy, I don't know, bottles of cognac, whatever you want to sort of bribe your officials with. Uh, you can do deals to maybe get nuclear materials and so on. So in a way, the money doesn't have to end up back in North Korea. If, if it is North Korea behind this, it's equally useful for North Korea to have it stashed in places like Macau and other places so it can then be used. So that's that's a sort of ultimate destination we think for the money. Mm. And so fascinating that behind this, as if that story isn't amazing enough, behind it is, uh, and going back into that strange territory of North Korea, is um, these group, the Lazarus group, as, as mm. they're called, who are sort of plucked as childhood geniuses mm. Mm. Uh, by the North Korean regime and possibly tr- as much as you, as you can tell and from the information you've garnered from your investigation, they're basically educated to become hackers and they are operating mm. in a community of hackers. Um, yeah trying to find the next money to steal. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about North Korea is um, all all computer hacking in North Korea is inevitably government computer hacking. Because if you're in North Korea and you've got a computer, an internet connection, you've got it because the government's given it to you. Uh, Mm. In the UK, you know, in Ireland, you can, can, you know, pick up a laptop, get an internet connection, learn how to hack, you know. (laughs) I suggest you do it in legal ways, but, you know, if... You can you can learn on the dark web and you can you can get access to these things. You can't do that in North Korea. The government has to give you that access. And so any hacking that comes out of North Korea sort of has to be government sanctioned. And so what we know is that the North Korean government is recruiting kids who are bright, good at computers. And that's partly because they want North Korea to be forward looking and technologically advanced. But also they're trying to find kids who are good, youngsters who are good at computers partly so they can work in the nuclear industry, which is very computer heavy, but also partly so they can become people who can go out and and get money for the North Korean regime, but also, like with the Sony Pictures hack, exert North Korea's power on the world stage. Um, computer hacking for a lot of countries, not just North Korea, who don't have a lot of money to spend, is a really useful tool for, for intimidating their enemies, breaking into their enemies, getting strategic advantage. You know, it's 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 cheaper than you know, getting nukes and missiles and so on. It's cheaper than hiring, you know, your James Bonds and your Aston Martins. If you can give a, you know, a youngster a laptop and an internet connection and say, go attack our enemies, that's that's a fairly cheap, you know, cheap outlay for what could be a really good return on investment. And like, are they picking them or finding them from the schooling system? Is, is you yeah. know, the kid that's best at maths or whatever picked out and maybe uh, are the teachers sort of dealing from what you know, with these government officials that are finding these kids, or or how how yeah. are they discovered? Yeah, yeah. From what I've been told, you know, very early on, um, teachers will be looking out for children who are gifted in maths because obviously maths is a basis of computer computer science. There's also an, uh, um, 
an incentive for North Koreans to get good at computing and to, and to have that skill because North Korea is a very rigidly controlled society. It has a class system, which again, I didn't know until mm. making the podcast with, with, with Gene. Um, and these classes are rigidly enforced. You know, it's not like the UK where, you know, if you go to a good uni, you can work your way up. And you know, the, the classes in North Korea are <clears throat> rigidly enforced. And you, ha- you have to fight very hard to get out of those classes. And one of the ways you can do it is if you're good at things like computers, you'll be upgraded from, you know, middle class into the elite potentially. So there's an incentive for North Korean kids to, you know, if they're good at maths, to get good at computers. It's not just them will benefit, the whole family will benefit mm. and the family's successors will benefit. You know, it's, once you're in that upper, upper class, once you move up the classes, that's it. You're, you're then good, not just now, but in the future. So a really big incentive for these kids to get good at computers. The, the, the really good ones will then be streamed off into the elite universities. The military obviously are in touch with those universities and they will be streaming those guys into, uh, you know, military occupations and military hacking. I mean, the stuff sort of goes on in places like the UK and Ireland and so on, you know, Government, government, you know, employees will be looking to the computer science departments in places like Wall Holloway to kind of, you know, work out where their next, you know, stack of good, good recruits is going to come from. But in North Korea, as I say, it's, it's a very systematic approach. And what it ends up with is, is you know, these, these kids in the military who are extremely good at computer hacking and have been sort of almost groomed for this career their, their whole, their whole uh, young adult life. And like <clears throat> some of the hackers that I've come across which I'm sure isn't half as many as you have, but I have come across one or two of them. There's good ones and there's bad ones. Uh, I've actually come across a few of the good ones. And they were probably, when they were younger, uh, you know, drawn into something that was nefarious. I think a lot Mm. of them are found, discovered as teenagers, knocking around online or whatever. Um, And, you know, they're coming from a more modern world. So I think they probably, as they develop a little bit, they realise the difference between right and wrong and maybe they pull out of the the criminal groupings that may have been using them or grooming them. But when you're coming from a regime like that in the first place, do you have that sense, that moralistic sense, or is it very deeply nationalistic that you're doing this for your country and for the betterment of your people? Basically, it's the latter. In in the vast majority of cases, it's going to be the latter. Um, From birth, North Koreans are taught that North Korea is the best place in the world to live, that the leader is unassailable and almost godlike, uh, and that North Korea has to fight for its deserved place in the world. And actually, if you think, I mean, North Korea is under threat from South Korea. It's also under threat from the US. These are both still its enemies. It's never declared peace. It's never ended the war with those two two, two entities. And so North Korea, you know, in a way, is 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 right to feel to feel paranoid. And the na- the nationalism comes out of that. Of you know, mm. we have to fight for our country because no one else will. We're alone. You know, it's us against the world. And the awful thing about that is it's kind of true, you know, partly because what, what because of what the leaders have done. So the hackers are brought up in that. And, and in, in a lot of the cases, it's going to be the idea that they, they, they are doing this for the good of country. But, you know, that's that's militaries all over the place. We, we tell that to our soldiers as well. Mm. Um, with the hackers, it's interesting, though, because unlike a lot of other people, there have been instances, quite a lot of instances of that we've been told about of computer hackers going abroad to do their hacking. So they'll go over the border into China, sometimes even further afield. You know, the Middle East seems to be a bit of a zone for, for this kind of stuff. Once they're out of that information bubble in North Korea, they must see mm. that North Korea isn't the paradise they've been told about. They must see that North Korea's got some big problems. And so when they continue hacking at that point, 
you can argue, well, you know, the nationalistic motivation they might have inside North Korea starts to fall apart a bit when they go outside. So why are they still doing it once they're outside North Korea? Why, you know, once once they can see the truth of the country, how can they still be doing it for patriotic reasons? It, you know, we would love to speak to a sort of former North Korean computer hacker. Mm. My co-host Gene has been efforting that, making efforts to, to, to make that happen, but to, to hear the psychology. But it, it's really interesting as to how they keep hacking, even though they, they potentially see the outside world and the truth of North Korea in, in, in contrast to it. Well, I suppose we've seen people being controlled in many different ways, you know, even within the modern world, they can be controlled by threats to their families. You know, maybe they are kept in poverty, even though they might mm. be living in China, whatever passports yeah. taken, um, you know, trafficking gangs manage to to control people, um, vast amounts of people through that kind of poverty of choice and and you know ability to to move or or whatever they've been committing a crime maybe it's not that easy to go look for help anyway just being slightly devil's advocate there but this Lazarus group are the most elite of the elite of Kim Jong Un's uh cyber warriors that's right i mean the, the- there are security companies who, you know, if, if your listeners want to go away and read all their blogs, um, will we'll give you chapter and verse on the sort of breakdown of North Korea's military and what units they think sit where. I'll be honest, we've used the Lazarus Group as a sort of convenient journalistic shorthand to just refer to North Korea's government hackers. Okay. Um, there are multiple groups doing multiple things. So, for example, it's, it's likely that the Sony hack would have been carried out by a different unit to the Bangladesh Bank hack. Mm. Because, you know, they're, they're slightly different attacks, they, they require different skills. Um, but certainly, you know, the folks who are doing these kind of particularly foreign operations being sent to foreign countries to do these hacks will, will be amongst the elite because it's only the elites who are allowed out of North Korea. That's that's how that works. Mm. And Jeff, is Jean still in North Korea by any chance? She's not. No, no. she spent years in North Korea, uh, subsequently left, works for, for, for a think tank and is still a journalist uh, in the US. Um, uh, so yes, was... I think hoping at one stage to go back to North Korea um, for recording. We're doing the season two of the podcast, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I know. This year. I'm looking forward to it. Be back on my bike. <laughs> but but the, the the COVID restriction combination of China, which is where you've got to go through on the way to North Korea, and the COVID restrictions in North Korea, I think she would have had, had to end up spending like two months in, in isolation. It was, just, it, was, it was crazy. So, But I, I suspect she wants to go back there, and I don't blame her. I mean, fascinating country, one which I'm unlikely ever to visit, but uh, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it's a long time to spend it yourself, two months, all right. But would she be... A bit concerned going back in now that uh, the podcast is out and, uh, you know, your book and you've, you're kind of revealing a hmm. huge amount about the goings on in this secretive country. And, you know, I'm joking about Kim Jong-un listening to me and maybe recruiting me, but he must be aware of you now and, and you guys. And I mean, he does have people working yes. for him, monitoring everything that's said about him. So... Yes, I mean, I, I you know, we have got in touch with the North Koreans. They did respond on the podcast. And as I say, their, their defence was, look, this is a smear campaign by our enemies to, you know, to incriminate us. We didn't do this. So we, we know that the North Koreans are aware of the podcast. Um, I would suspect that they've listened to it. Again, they'll be aware of the book because we contacted them about the book, for which they didn't add further comment. Um, there is an interesting question somebody raised the other day. Of, Does Kim Jong-un personally know about us and what we did? Um, I don't know. I find that quite frightening. Um, yeah. On the other hand, that's, that is possible. One thing I have tried to do is n- not to poke fun at Kim Jong-un mm. for a couple of reasons. Number one, that, as we can see with Sony, gets you into a lot of trouble. But number two, th- th- 
he's the country's leader. He has hung on for a very long period of time, well, not as long as his father and grandfather, but he's hung on for 10 solid years and managed to, you know, get the country under his control, which is very impressive. He's asserting power on the world stage, which again is very impressive. You know, this is not a man to be underestimated. You know, mm. you talked about the hairdo, you know, and, and the suits. He's got an image that, that seems to some people slightly buffoonish. Do not think that this is somebody who is smart, aggressive, has a great deal of grip and is a survivor. And if you look at his father and his grandfather, you know, that that's an interesting mm. pattern, you know. So I, I feel... You know, I hope I've played Kim Jong Un with a straight bat. I'm sure he doesn't like what I do, but mm. you know, I've, I've, I, I do not underestimate this individual. He's, you know, his leadership has been impressive and for a lot of people, very, very disruptive and and and, and aggressive. But your paranoia every time you turn on your computer must be, or do you just have <laughs> so much security on it? I, t- I take it very seriously. I take it very mm. seriously. The BBC does, and Penguin, the publisher for the book, take it very seriously. Um, I look, the, the useful thing about covering all this stuff is, you know, I, I speak to so many victims of these attacks. And, and so I am very familiar with the tactics that are used to break into their systems. And depressingly, Nicola, even after 20 years ish of covering tech and cybercrime, the phishing email is still the way in. Mm. You know, if, if, if your listeners want to take any one security lesson out of this podcast, emails, particularly email attachments, are your enemy. You know, do not open those attachments unless you know absolutely that it's come from a trusted source. If in doubt, phone the person up or send them a fresh email and say, did you send this? Um, so that's the main thing that I look out for. There's loads of other stuff I do as well, but you know, for the stuff your listeners can use and apply, that's the same thing. And it'll protect you not just from North Korea, but also from other cyber criminals too. Yeah, I've asked you the kind of questions that people usually ask me in regards to the organised criminals. And I suppose in a way, the more knowledge you attain, the hmm. more sort of protections in a way you're giving yourself with, with, with your knowledge and through how you're educating yourself on it. Um, yeah. Yeah, so don't believe that you've just been given three million by the Nigerian <laughs> government. I mean... Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I get those emails and I'm always so tempted to open them just to see what's in them. And then I don't because I know that I would be mm. in deep, deep trouble with Media House if I infect their entire system with something. Um, but look, everyone has to be so aware of cybercrime now. And it's not just the North Koreans as groups. I mean, our own HSE was hit. I don't know whether mm. you saw that. Mm. Yes, in the of middle course, yes. of COVID caused huge problems to just ordinary people looking for their, to get their appointments for chemotherapy and various things. Mm. I know people working in hospitals and they were handwriting stuff for a long, long time, going right back mm. to basics. But the chaos it caused, and it was rumoured at the time here that, I don't know whether they ever got to the bottom of it, I wasn't told anyway, but it was possibly Russian groups um, who are really very active in in this cybercrime as well. Um, You know, they're out there, aren't they? There's a lot of people realising that there is a lot of money that can be connected to literally sitting in an armchair. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. It's what I call the the Superman 3 model of crime, the the cybercrime model, which um, a lot of your listeners won't remember that. But there's a film, um, Richard Pryor played the villain, or at least the villain's assistant in Superman 3. And he realised that the bank was writing off the fractions of a cent at the end of every transaction. So he wrote a programme that gathered together all the fractions of a cent and made millions. That's the organised cybercrime model. They will happily steal £5 from each of you. Um, 
you know, you might not even notice it, let alone report it to the police, but they're doing it to a million people. Mm. So that's five million pounds, you know. So, so, so they've realised that they can work at scale. And ransomware's, you know, in a way, the sort of high tide mark, I think, at the moment, certainly of that, of that um, tactic. You know, they, they will hit companies around the world are susceptible because they use the same systems to the same type of ransomware. And for the, for the hackers, they just go from one target to the next, to the next, to the next, extorting as much money as they can. And it's automated. You know, when the payments are made, they're often made using Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency. It's mainly Bitcoin. And so they can, you know, automate the process of getting the ransom in. It's, it's, it's a sort of new digital version of, of, of ransoming. And it's, it's very efficient, very well honed. And as you say, Russian cybercrime gangs are believed to be behind an awful lot of this. Mm. I mean, look, we secure ourselves physically in so many ways and our homes and all the rest of it. But I mean, anybody like me, I had my credit card done for about 12 months before I realized it. Just never looked at it. Okay. Yeah. Oh, mm, God. I know. Mm. Uh, anyway, it wasn't that much. But as you say, whatever the grouping were, we're probably doing it to um, yeah. plenty of other people and making a lot of money out of it. So, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, but... I'm just going to finish, Jeff, by asking you um, just for a little bit of titillation for the next series. What, what's coming up in the, in the next series of The Lazarus Heist? Um, so here's how it works. So the, the series one of the podcast obviously was, as you said, it was a compelling listen and there were some amazing stories in there. Um, the book takes the podcast on um, from the end and includes just some bonkers material. I mean, the North Koreans end up, the North Koreans end up working with an Instagram influencer in Dubai mm who's a guy called Hush Puppy, who has 2.3 million Instagram followers and spends most of his time swanning about, from what I can see, in Givenchy pyjamas. <laughs> uh, it, it's astonishing, absolutely astonishing. It just gets weirder and weirder. Cash points around the world start spewing out money. It, just astonishing. So that's all the stuff in the book. Series to the podcast, we're going even deeper into that stuff. But we've also had, and this came after the book was finished, an attack on a computer game in Vietnam, like a sort of Tamagotchi-style computer game. It's really weird. The hackers, who are now believed to be North Korean, stole $625 million from that company. That's the biggest computer hack, biggest amount taken from one victim in one hack ever. And that's now attributed to North Korea. So, so you think they got $81 million from, you know, Bangladesh Bank. It took them a year, quite complicated, you know, casinos full of cash. They got $625 million in one hit. <laughs> in a few minutes. I mean, that's that's the scale of things. So that's the stuff we're going to be digging into uh, in series two. It, it gets bigger, it gets, you know, more interesting, more compelling, but also, I suppose, more frightening from that perspective. I'll tell you, I'm going to stop laughing at that man's haircut and take him yeah. a little bit more serious. What's the name of the book, Jeff? Mm. It's called The Lazarus Heist, same as a podcast. Yeah. Listen, thanks a million. So fascinating. And I'd urge anybody to listen or read. Thank you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.